This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, a video goes viral on social media, in the papers or even on the nightly television news, and it shows an officer or maybe two officers with a resistive suspect without having much success in gaining control. Bystanders are there taking videos with their phones and assistance from the crowd is rare. Then a shot's fired or some other force causes extensive injury to the suspect, or even worse, how can we stop this from happening? Well, I've got a great guest today. It's Jay Wadsworth. Jay is the Director of Combatants and Lead Instructor for EFC Combatives. He is uh, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu second-degree black belt, retired pro and amateur MMA fighter, 20 years of street cop experience, 13 years as a SWAT operator, uh, New York State uh, DCJS certified SWAT operator, defensive tactic instructor, many, many more accolades. Jay, we could do a whole show just reading your bio. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's just a you know long career and a lot of hard work and constantly looking to get better and change the culture and training. Yeah, well, gra- glad to see that you are taking your experience, doing your, your research and uh, teaching other officers uh, you know, how to protect themselves and, and uh, good strategies and tactics. We've seen so many viral videos of the ones like I just described, uh, where you have an officer or two, or maybe even a, you know, a swarm of officers having difficulty taking a, an individual into custody. What do you see besides maybe the size and the ability of the offender as the main failure to secure these individuals? So there's a, there's a couple of things that we can talk about. First and foremost is going to be the officer's training and hands-on skills. So unfortunately, in today's policing, and even if you look back, we're so belt and tool dependent. And in our belief, you, you should actually be hands-on verbal de-escalation, hands-on control dependent. And then your belt and tools assist you in those other skills when you need to escalate up in the, in the use of force. I basically break down use of force into three categories. The first one is going to be their passive. And we don't really see much issue with passive. And the second one is going to be what we see the highest percentage in. And that's going to be actively resisting. The suspect's actively resisting us. He's not necessarily trying to assault us, hit us, kick us. He's just trying to either flee or struggle to not get taken into custody. Then you have your actively combative subjects. So those are kind of your three uh, hands-on use of forces that, that we talk about and see the most when we're talking about hands-on skills. The yeah, number well, one problem is I'm sorry, go training. Ahead. The number one problem is training. Uh, we, we go to the academy. Maybe we're there for six to eight months, say, on average, and your average defensive tactics program in the academy is maybe 40 to 60 hours. And then most agencies don't have any in-service training. So you go and you train for 40 to 60 hours 
and then you go out onto FTO and then eventually onto the street. And if you don't do anything on your own, there's no mandates from uh, legislatures, from admins to continually train. So we continually train in things such as sexual harassment, uh, maybe stuff we do on PowerPoint and the computer and uh, maybe law. Sure, those things we all need to do too. But the thing that we do on a daily basis across this country is we put our hands on people to protect others. We're putting our hands on another person to take them into custody. And we just don't have those skills. And that's the biggest problem I see is there's no hands-on skills. The second one is there's no SOPs or standard operating procedures or plans of any way to train in team tactics. And what I mean by that is multiple officers taking a subject into custody. So everyone's just doing their own thing. And you might be pushing and pulling, trying to go for an arm, I'm going for an arm on the other side. No one's controlling the hips and the head. Uh, we should be only going for one arm at a time, but we're both kind of like pulling against each other. And these are the things that aren't trained. So even if we don't have a guy that's highly skilled, we just have a guy that is got hands-on skills that trains a little bit and he's competent, the competent operator. And you put two or three cops on one person, you should be able to handle those people for the most part. Nothing's a hundred percent. We know that we never say never always in our line of work because it just doesn't happen. But you should have three, two, three competent officers if they knew what each other were doing and they just continuously took um, something off the first contact officer's plate. We see this happen all the time, like especially our agency and then people we train with because we develop an SOP and then we train them in what to do. As cops, we cheat, right? We don't try to fight people one-on-one. -on -one. We aren't competing with these people. It's not a competition. We're taking them into custody. So team tactics is super, super undertrained. Most departments don't even have team tactics. Most academies don't even have team tactics in their curriculums. And that is the second thing that we really need to work on. Yeah, and you know, I, I know, you know, when we go to these trainings that a lot of times it is a PowerPoint and then maybe some mat work and we, we talk about, you know, hand-to-hand -hand tactics and things like that. How much of your training talks about emotional intelligence of the officer? Uh, what the suspect, the offender might be thinking, how much of the failure comes from fear on the officer's part because they know they might be on somebody's video or they may use a tactic that, you know, looks awful. We call it uh, lawful but awful, right? Uh, the, the leg sweep or hair pull down or hammer blows that to an outside person looking in looks like the officer's just punching the guy. Um, do you talk about that as well? Yeah, ineffective force can give the appearance of being excessive, and it might not be. We might be in the lethal force, or we might be in the level of force to be able to strike the guy, to um, punch him repeatedly, and it's just not working. Maybe pain compliance fails. Most strikes, uh, batons, that kind of stuff is all pain compliance, and it fails um, in a high percentage across the board because people are on drugs, uh, people are on alcohol. Uh, you also have you know, your adrenaline all those things, high pain tolerances. So pain compliance fails a lot. And if that's all you have, that's the only skill set you have of controlling a human being, then we see and it looks ugly. And they have to strike them repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And usually the strikes don't end up finishing it. And what happens is they just get exhausted and tired and then they get them into custody. So that appearance may seem excessive, but it's probably not for the most part. 
the, the, again, the lack is we don't have those hands-on skills. If I punch someone and, and I'm a huge proponent of adding striking to my control tactics and adding striking to create distance, they go hand in hand. So I'm not like, because I'm a jujitsu guy, it doesn't mean I'm against striking and striking has its place in police work for sure. But we have to add them together. And we have to understand that once pain compliance fails, that strike is either one, a distraction technique, or maybe we're trying to get a change of behavior. And if we don't, then we have other options where we solve problems. We make problem solvers at EFC. We're not, we're not building like technicians. We want to develop skills and make problem solvers. And that's the, that's the thing that we see. I, I think that like people understand and the fear gets to them because one, you're in a fight, but now we're in a fight that we're not good at fighting. Most human beings aren't good at fighting. If you take a guy that's a two-year jujitsu blue belt and put him against a guy three times the size that's never fought, he's probably going to beat the guy. Okay. So what training does is it gives us a skill set to take people in custody. It also gives us confidence. Okay. That confidence allows us to channel our fear in a good direction and make positive decisions under stress and criti- under critical decisions and make good, good decisions when we're doing that. Training will always slow the game down for us. And what I mean by slow the game down for us is if we're in a frenzy and you, you've worked with those people out, like you're freaking out and you don't know what's going on, you're not making good decisions under stress. I tell people fear is not a bad way to everyone is fearful of things. Everyone gets scared. Uh, fear is an emotion that we act off of all the time in policing. We shouldn't act off of being angry or being mad because this job, it, it, you, you can't take it personal. Okay. We have a job to do as a professional, but we can be fearful of something. That's okay. But the problem is, is when we're fearful of our own skill set, that's what we see most of the time. You have someone that doesn't train. They're probably out of shape because fitness is a foundation of most, uh, everything that we do. And then now you put them in a fight, but now that fight is all these variables, unknown weapons, bigger, stronger person. I have weapons on my, my kit. And can I take this subject in custody? Is he going to try to take my gun? Is he going to present his own gun? Is he trying to beat me up or is he just trying to resist? That's where we see fear come and then escalate up into force is because we don't have that skill set and we don't have the ability to slow the game down and then make good decisions or problem solve it. Yeah, you, you see that a lot in these videos where you can almost it, it's palpable, the the fear and a little bit of the panic. And and sometimes, you know, we see officers who think they're going for their taser when in, in actuality they go for their own firearm is there a simple fix? What is the answer? You know, we've had Henner Gracie uh, from the Gracie BJJ uh, Jiu-Jitsu family and academy on, on board. Um, you posted a video called Minding the 45 or some variation of that. I was really impressed how you broke it down into um, terms of watching out for the 45. Tell us about that. Okay, so so let's go that that first question in the beginning of the segment here was, uh, what do we do? How can we be better? And it's we need legislatures, the federal government, state governments, and then administrations to mandate training consistently. And it needs to be good, consistent, hands-on training. And we could expand that, and it could be, hey, range training needs to be more consistent. 
you know, some, some departments train once a year or qualify once a year. Well, okay. If you're only qualifying once a year and you're shooting 70 on paper, you're probably not very good if it comes to like a gunfight in the street. So now something we're doing every day, going hands-on with people and we don't train, that has to be trained. And, and in my true belief, officers should have an hour of hands-on training a week. That's the only way to actually be good at something is to train it consistently. So whether it's skill building, whether it's they uh, implement a in-service where they can train on duty or they start partnering with community gyms. So one of the models we're seeing is working is the agencies don't have the resources to train their officers on a weekly basis. So what they're doing is they're partnering with community jujitsu gyms and saying, hey, if my officer goes here and trains, we'll pay for his his uh, training, we'll pay for his membership. And that seems to be the model that's working the best. We just we just launched our certified academies. We're trying to partner with these um, civilian gyms to give them a curriculum of what we do outside of sport jujitsu, the fundamentals of jujitsu and wrestling work. Okay. They work in the sport, they work on the street, but on the street, we have so many more variables that we have to understand how we integrate that into the weapons-based system. Okay. Let's talk about the 45 and that's where we come into, Hey, how do we integrate fundamentals of wrestling and jujitsu of controlling the human body? Okay. In the clinch or in an entanglement and then our environment. I'm taking someone into custody. And as I'm doing that, they start to present something. Most things that are presented from a human being, if you're going to grab something off your body, it's usually from the bottom of your pants pockets, okay, to the top of where a hoodie would be, okay, the top of the hoodie pocket. That general area in the 360 around your body is normally where people grab to present things. And now when we say present something, they may be presenting a gun or a knife. But they might also just be trying to get rid of dope, grab a cell phone, present something else. So it's not always, hey, we got to jump right into a lethal force situation. But we have to be aware of it, and then we have to give it attention right away. Basically, what that elbow flare is, is it makes a 45 degrees. If I try to reach for my waistband where my gun is, or my hoodie, or my pants pocket, front or back, or on the side, when you do that, your elbow makes an angle that it goes out at a 45 it goes up and out at a 45. If I'm trying to just like hug my arms underneath me and be that guy that's trying not to give you my arms, they're at a 90. If I'm trying to throw punches, I'm trying to strike, they come from a 90 or more of a flat angle. Nothing nothing puts your elbow in that 45 like the way of presenting. So there's nothing we do as humans to put our elbow in a 45 direction besides presenting something. So now if we know that and we bring that at to the attention of our officers at the, the recruit level and then at the in-service level. Now we can say, okay, let's see this at distance. We're chasing someone in a foot pursuit or we're walking up on someone and then we see them looking back and we see their elbow flare to that 45. We need to give it attention and we're at distance. So now maybe that's presenting and getting offline towards cover, but something bad could be coming out. So we have to be ready for that. When it gets really quick and we don't have time to decide what's going on is when we're in that entanglement. We're on the ground on top of them or we're standing and trying to take them into custody in some sort of clinch. And then we see that 45 flare. We have to give it attention right away. Okay? We need to either trap it and keep whatever they're trying to present in and not let it come out and work to take them down and get to a position where we can figure out what they have. Maybe we have to control that arm and present our own own weapon, depending on, again, what they have. 
And the more that you see that and you work through those uh, with no resistance and then just slowly add resistance up from the, sus from the suspect that's your training partner, 5%, 10%, just kind of work up, you start to see this going. Then the officers start to realize what they're looking for. You could start the suspect's stomach down with their arms underneath them and have the guy just try to take him into custody and the bottom guy's giving him some resistance. And at some point he's going to flare his arm and maybe he's presenting a weapon. Maybe he's presenting something else, but the officer has to see it and then be aware of it. If he doesn't see it now, we're behind the eight ball of what our actions are. If it is something that we should have caught or it's something dangerous to us, like a weapon of their own. Yeah. The, are we, how, how is that widespread teaching now? I mean, are we talking about that in court uh, when we ask, when they're asking why we're using force? So I, I saw this a while back and just started like breaking down videos and I'm sure people have talked about it before. I just don't think it's widespread. It's not like Jay Wadsworth made up. Here's the 45. It's just a structure of our body and the angle that it goes into when we're trying to grab something. It's something I picked up on and then just really started to some work into it, especially when I was trying to integrate control and custody with weapons and spending a lot of time there. And I, at the time I, I worked for an urban, I work in an urban department and I was a very proactive street cop when I was on the streets and I got into a lot of foot pursuits and a lot of use of forces as far as like the actively resistance, actively combative. And I was in a lot of things that gave me tons of experience. And I saw things like, hey, going into the mount, a lot of jujitsu guys teach them to mount a suspect if he's stomach up. I don't do that. That happened to me one time on the street. A guy kind of grabbed a hold of me in a response that we see in the gym from new guys all the time. And like his girlfriend started to come over towards me. I switched to the knee on top position and it took me a few seconds. If she was closer and was trying to present a weapon or something, I would have been like, okay, I can't disengage here very fast. Maybe this dominant jujitsu position isn't great in the environment of, I don't know how close other people are or where they're at. So again, these things, having the experience of being on the street and in uses of forces in the environment that we're at is, is like such a benefit to be able to add them to the fundamentals of jujitsu and wrestling. I continually talk about the fundamentals of jujitsu and wrestling. Okay. So for years we had like Aikidos and wrist locks and PPCT and, and, and all that stuff. It, it, it is what it is. Okay. Any discipline has its benefits, any discipline, karate, taekwondo, those, they have their benefits. Okay. I get it. They, there's some sort of benefit to doing it, but when we're physically on a daily basis, trying to take into custody other human beings as our profession and as our job to protect people, we need to be good at those skills. And if you look at the arts that are good in those skills are going to be jujitsu and wrestling that were integrated with MMA. Now, if we take that jujitsu, wrestling and MMA, we integrate the weapons-based systems, we integrate weapon entanglements, presentations, weapon mm -hmm. defense, and then the use of force along with the environment. Now we have a curriculum from Cabatis. And that's kind of what we did. Again, you take a jujitsu guy in a tournament against another jujitsu guy. They are 100% not like trying to let the other guy control them. Same with wrestling. You go to a wrestling tournament. They happen, you know, all, you know, from November to March, almost all across the country, every weekend, every night of the week. What are those guys doing? They're 100% giving resistance against each other and trying not to be controlled. And the other guy's trying to control them. 
So those are the those are the fundamentals we want to be good at because they're controlling other human beings. They learn skills that teach them how to control someone. And that's controlling another person that's trained. So now as police officers, we can integrate that into our curriculums and train our cops to have really good hands-on skills. I'm telling you, it's a game changer. That's where culture is changing and training. It's going to take a lot of companies, a lot of good companies, a lot of good people. But, you know, we're, we're trying to really push that out, you know, and I think that's where it's at. We see the benefits. I've seen it firsthand from my department when we started teaching team tactics and control tactics back in 2010 to where we're at. It, it's a game changer. The feedback from all the people we teach, man, team tactics, knee on top, head stabilization, a low anchor on the legs. All that stuff is like not difficult. It's very simple fundamentals that is just trained under uh, revolving concepts and principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hit on a bunch of good points there. And, you know, I'm thinking about it as you're talking that, you know, once officers use force, they're always questioned either by their supervisor or when they write the report or maybe later in court. But the way you just articulated it, uh, I think, you know, an officer uh, learning the the tactics would, um, you know, be well versed in, in repeating what you just said that, you know, once the arms go there, they're going for something, they're reaching, maybe it's a weapon, maybe it's to throw contraband, but in that case, that's why I applied this uh, use of force. You also talked about the mount. And, you know, I've I've been concerned for the last, I don't know, I started noticing it maybe over the last year with the proliferation of load-bearing bear, vests um, that you see a lot of officers uh, with, you know, extra flex cuffs, handcuffs, baton, flashlight, uh, maybe even a knife in front. A taser, and I'm thinking, how is that? How are we exposing ourselves and our own weapons to someone when we go face to face with them? What What are you saying about that, or what do you What are you teaching in regards to what you put across the gear you put across your vest? First and foremost, gear is huge. There's two things that we control every day when we go into work, and it's you know our preparation for the day, and, and then our equipment. We control that. Uh, some departments want to say you can do this, this, and this, but we still control what gear we have on and how we wear it. And if not, then we can write memos, train on it, and try to get that changed. But when I do gear checks, I see people with all sorts of different gear, tons of gear, less gear. Gear, gear needs to be simple, and, and it needs to be in the same spot, and you need to train with it repetitively in multiple different ways, on the range, on the mat room, uh, full kit vests because when you start seeing those guys that have 50 flex cuffs they got two knives on them taser pepper spray uh ass four cuffs and they start getting into a clinch whether it's vertical on the ground trying to move that stuff's falling off most of it falls off or breaks i tell people all the time i before we do anything we do a safety check we check their gear i tell them i want them to have everything on their kit that they possibly can in the dt lab except for ammunition and a live weapon. If they carry keys, I want them on their belt. If they have a taser, I have them bring their taser. We take the probes off. We check it for safety. If someone gets touched tased, it's pain compliance, no big deal. But I want that stuff on there. Everything you bring, you have to be able to retain that stuff. Mm. And that's what people don't understand. Weapon retention is just not your handgun. Weapon retention could be 
your taser. It could be your knife. It could be your pe- your pepper spray. And that's why, again, sometimes sport jujitsu guys get way too overwhelmed with like moves that, hey, I'm going to commit my whole body, both hands to one side of this guy's body and my eyes. And now my whole other side of my kit is wide open, taser, pepper spray, knife, whatever that they could take. How am I going to see the 45? How am I going to see their attempt to grab it? How am I going to give it attention when I don't see it? And that's the problem with now putting gear into what are we doing? So for me, it's simple. Keep your simple, but you need to train in it over and over and over again. I for sure think that you should have your 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 weapon, your sidearm, okay, your lethal force weapon. You should have one form of less lethal, okay? One form of a less lethal weapon, whether that's taser, pepper spray, whatever people want, ass, because we we talk about even if we don't use it, did we have that available? If I have hands-on skills to just deadly physical force weapons, I have nothing in the middle to be able to solve problems if that is the case. Okay, Maybe I have a guy at 25 feet to 25 yards, and we have good cover, and we both have our guns out. Now one of us could go to taser, but if we don't have that less lethal option, it's not an option for us. Mm. Okay? Maybe he's running as the taser fails, and then we have to... Uh, engage anyways, but maybe the taser works. Okay. Maybe it works. So for me, it's one form of less lethal minimum. Uh, I try to keep it at one because I don't want a whole bunch of stuff on my belt. I'm a skinny guy. I don't have a whole bunch of area to put it on. So for me, it was my, my gun or still is my gun. Uh, I carried a taser when I was on, on uh, patrol. And then for me, I like a fixed blade and the fixed blade for me is, is carried concealed. So it's concealed that I can present it with one hand, but it's it's concealed so that they can't see it right away or they're not, it's just not like super bright. Oh, here's a knife on my person. Uh, I always carried mine uh, under my vest off the side. So it was like a pick. I could draw it with my uh, support side hand and that I call it a problem solver. For some reason, I weapon retention, when I teach it, I talk about three objectives in weapon retention. Objective one is we retain that weapon as the first objective. Number two, yes, we're in deadly physical force, but if my my gun is in my holster, I need to retain it. So I can't just shoot the guy. That's not the answer. Number two is I need to take his hand off my gun. We need to clear his grab from our weapon. That is our two main objectives. But if that fails, what is my personal SOP for what I'm going to do? Okay. And if I have a pocket knife on my right side that I can't deploy without opening with two hands and my support hand or my dominant hand is defending my weapon, how am I getting that out? Assuming no good. Or if I have my right hand, which is my strong hand fighting and retaining my weapon, and I take my support hand and I go to a taser and we're in this clinch. And now the guy grabs my taser coming out. Now we're in the fight for two weapons. The knife is very small. It's easy to conceal. It's easy to present when needed. Uh, it's very difficult to defend against uh, that that causes problems on the other side of things. But for me, uh, again, gun, one form of less lethal, some sort of edged weapon that you can carry uh, center line to support side or be able to present with both hands that's carried concealed. And then uh, tourniquet, huge. got to have a tourniquet, chest seal somewhere on your person. Those two things for medical. Uh, we didn't put a lot of thought into medical for years and years and years. And now we see the the benefits of medical coming out. So I, I carry a, a personal like IFAC kit on on the center of my back, and it's got a pull 
it's a Ronin one. I can pull it from either side, have it in my hand. And inside there, I have a chest, uh, chest seals, uh, some gauze, and then I have another tourniquet besides the one that's on my belt. Hmm. I have one handcuff case on my belt, and I had one handcuff case that was real tight in, on my um, plate carrier or my vest, and then my radio one on my vest. That was it. That's all I carried. So, and again, radio, uh, people asked me that I post about this the other day, I would keep all my cords up underneath my, my vest. So I would, I had, a, uh, like a shoulder mic and I didn't have that cord exposed. That cord went from my vest and went underneath. I ran it all the way up and I had on a shoulder. I used like a mic loop so it doesn't fall off, but I could actually get on the radio and talk by using my chin and my hands could be doing work at the same time. Mm. So that's kind of how I designed my kit. It took a long time. I changed equipments tons of times trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And a lot of times, like we'd be grappling or fighting with this stuff. And obviously my equipment gets used a lot in the training room as, as well as on the street. And I find this equipment works. This one breaks easy. I, I was using some speed pouches. Uh, I won't name the names, but they were good. But as soon as you start hitting the ground and fighting, they were breaking. And I just got tired of replacing them. So I bought a, I, I went with this company, Aztec. I don't make any money from them, but they're like friction pouches. I, I pound the crap out of them and I have had no issues. And again, mm -hmm. that's just finding out by training and equipment. People don't train in them. Sure. Hey, I want to talk to you about less lethal, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Jay Wadsworth, cop, SWAT operator, leader, and force training expert. Jay, what's the update on gaps to lethal, uh, less lethal weapons, uh, impact of restrictions on the carotid restraint and other weapons. Um, some legislatures have mandated uh, non-use of those uh, options. There's more talk about reforms and the politicians are talking about less weaponry, not more. What are we going to do to fill the gaps if, say, your agency or your region says, hey, no more carotid, no more pepper spray, no more tear gas at uh, demonstrations? Uh, we're going to take away uh, tasers in San Francisco. I worked for San Francisco PD. We never had tasers and they'll never get them. What are we going to do uh, to bridge the gap? So, so the fir first and foremost, when legislatures make these decisions, I've yet to see any scientific medical studies with them of why they're making these decisions. It's knee-jerk reactions. So whenever we take a knee-jerk reaction and go one way or the other, it's not good. We add all this stuff, that's probably not going to be good. We take all this stuff away, that's probably not going to be good either. But we can't be jumping to these knee-jerk reactions when they're uneducated reactions. Let's, let's talk about the carotid restraint, for instance. We're teaching kids 
and jujitsu across the country and across the world how to apply carotid restraints. And nobody's dying because they're trained in it and they train how to do it properly. No one to release it. No one to take them into custody off it or how to apply it. So the problem with taking the carotid restraint and make it a deadly physical force tool is it doesn't save anybody's life. It doesn't save anybody's life. So we have that guy. He's just big and strong. We have two cops. Maybe they're fighting him and they can't hold him down. This guy's um, on some sort of controlled substance. They can't hold him down. Uh, they've tased him. Taser fails. Maybe it's a bad connection, probably between poor connection and probably operator error or poor training. But those fail. And now they have no other option but to maybe go to shoot this guy. Or he escalates up now because we couldn't handle him. And then we have to end up using a higher level of force. What if we simply put those carotid restraints at a level of force that is under deadly physical force, somewhere near our impact weapons are less lethal, and we trained our cops on that? Imagine how many lives that would save, right? To, look, the Grand Rapids incident. You remember the Grand Rapids incident? The guy was behind him. They fought for three minutes. Most people don't realize how long three minutes in a fight is. First off, maybe the officer couldn't disengage. Maybe he was exhausted. Uh, maybe the guy has taser. Maybe he didn't know if the taser was deployed or not. What if he could have just reapplied a rear naked choke from that point, right? Rear naked choke now would be a tracheal choke. So, but if you're in deadly phase of force, you could do that. But what if we go a step below and we say, okay, carotid uh, restraints, which aren't going to cause any damage. Right? And we apply that until he goes out, we release it, we cuff him, we roll him over, we lift his feet up, we get the blood flowing again, subjects okay, and lives. We'll never know that, okay? Because we don't have that as an option, most of the departments across this country right now, because most uh, departments have taken it away since Eric Gardner and George Floyd have just taken it away. It's not saving anybody's life. If you put, hey, you can't use a choke until deadly physical force, but they can shoot them in the same level, okay? They're at a force where they can use whatever force necessary to, to end, the, end the threat or the situation. So, I think the gap is, is we just need to get some medical studies out there. We need politicians. We need legislatures to realize that the carotid restraint, if you don't want to use it in a low level force, that's fine. But let's put it in a level of force that's actually going to save people's lives. And it's not just saving the cops' lives. Most of the time, it's probably going to save more suspects' lives than it is anybody else. Our tools. The biggest thing I see with our tools, again, and, and we can talk about this, but as far as reform, is going to be mandated training consistently. And the problem is, is I ask people these questions all the time. How many times in the beginning class does your department do hands-on in-service DT training where you're going hands-on with people? Usually it's zero. One time a year at best, most, most cases. Wow. Okay, Nobody's going to be good at doing that if they don't train consistently. Civilians think we're trained robots. They, Civilians truly think cops are trained robots. That's why they criticize us so hard. Okay. No one will ever take away that, hey, if every suspect cooperated, we wouldn't have to use force. Okay. So, first and foremost, just cooperation would solve it. But just like violence, that is never going to happen across the board. We're always going to have people resisting arrest. So, what do we have to do as a profession? We need to train and we need to fix the way we train and change the culture of. We need to train consistently. We need to train in hands-on skills. 
We need to integrate weapons into those hands-on skills, and then we need to shoot more. And if we do that and, and have fitness standards, if we don't have fitness standards, that, again, that's the foundation to everything. If you're exhausted in two seconds, you're going to make poor decisions because of that fear response you talked about in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If you're in good shape, you know how to control somebody and you can roll a, a 10 minute round at the gym and you can shoot well and you know how to transition from one weapon system to the next weapon system because you train it all the time. You're going to see so much more uh, effectiveness in taking people into custody, less uses of force. We are allowed to use the most reasonable force necessary. We are allowed under Graham Connor. That's what it tells us. And sometimes if we use less than what we're reasonably allowed to use, it just escalates the force up. Mm. So again, training, I, I started doing this reality-based training drill and we call them box drills. The Navy SEALs did a whole bunch of, they paid probably millions of dollars to have these studies done and they do what they call black hood drills. And it's basically an immediate response to some action or fear and you don't know what's in front of you. So we don't have the hoods and, and all this stuff to, to do it. So we just do box drills where they're facing away from them. They don't know the scenario. There's no scenario. They turn and then they just have to solve what's in front of them. It could be from a drunk close talker to deescalating by just creating space and talking to them to maybe a lethal force encounter. But they do those over and over again. They get used to responding to that fear right away or that situation. So I came up with one in 2022, and it was because of all the taser fails that we were seeing. The taser not being effective or maybe the taser not uh, having a high efficiency of taking people into custody. And there's many variables to why that could happen. One of those could be uh, the, the connection. Maybe it's the operator error of when to follow up drive stun. Maybe it's people just trying to drive stun without probes. And when we're doing that, it's pain compliance and we're actually handing the weapon to the person, putting it close to them where they can take it. So I took a training cartridge. I put it on a real taste. I deployed it. I cut the probes off and I put duct tape probes on this thing. And I've done it with just over 80 people right now. And what I do is I take one of my other instructors and they have a shock knife and they're laying on the ground with the shock knife underneath them. And then I put one probe like right on their belt where they could see it. And the other probes underneath them that didn't make good contact. The officer is going to have the taser facing away and I'll tell him, I give him a little bit of the scenario. It's not a true boxer. I say, listen, when I say begin, I want you to turn the taser, take the safety off, pull the trigger. I want you to turn and you're in the middle of a deployment. That's all they know. And I've had three good responses, three out of those 80 some. Most, the, the good response, you know, a response to that would be when that guy, keep your distance, start giving them verbal commands when those five seconds run out, but don't approach him right away by yourself. You're by yourself. You don't have lethal cover. And uh, the guys start giving them verbal commands. He starts to pop up. They move laterally transitioning to lethal force because that's their option. And they got a knife coming at them and tasers already fail. And that's what we want to see, whether they pull the taser down and draw with their dominant hand, or they just drop the taser altogether, move laterally out of space towards cover and, and get, get a gun up and at least start changing his behavior, weapon change and verbal commands, or maybe engaging depending how close he gets to us. The responses are that everyone wants to run to this guy. And we've had, he jumps up with a knife and he's coming at him. They're still trying to like pull the taser, like pull the trigger. 
the, the taser's failing and this guy's coming at you with a knife and it's crazy. I've had people turn and they set the taser down while it's going. And then they try to run up and cuff the guy by themselves. And the guy rolls over and they're now in this tangle and he's got a knife. Uh. So again, we just aren't training right. We are not training right. And if we're going to carry these tools on us, we need to train consistently with them. And we have to be able to have good training. You have to have good curriculums. How many range instructors are having their officers take the taser out there? Maybe training cartridge, maybe just take the <clears> taser <throat> off so you're not wasting money. Okay, taser presentation. And in the middle of that taser presentation, they're saying, gun, gun, gun. Now they have to drop and change to their, their lethal force or just hold the taser with their left hand, put it down like you would transition a long gun into your um, sidearm. But whatever way they decide to do with that, they have to make some sort of transition to lethal force. And then they should start getting out of space or creating more space to distance. Yeah, that's that's great training. Uh, love to see more of that. Hey, we're running out of time and I totally appreciate the time you're taking to share your knowledge and your training skill. Uh, any last uh, words on what you're presenting or writing about these days? So efcombatives.com. And then uh, you can find us on Instagram at efcombatives. And we have a whole bunch of courses already up on the webpage that you can come to. We'll be in TTPOA in Fort Worth, Texas. They're hosting us this week. And then we're going to New Jersey. We're going to be in Michigan in March, Florida in April, Kentucky, May, I think California and Indiana in June. You guys have to follow the schedule. Okay. Come check us out. Find us, train with us. Uh, we also have online app. So you can have that at the touch your hands for the entire time of your certification or your training with us and uh, look forward to uh, seeing people be safe. Yeah, good. Start training. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, you know, it was your video that, that caught my eye and made me want to get a hold of you to get you on the show. Thanks for being here. Jay Wadsworth, director of combatives and lead instructor for EFC combatives. You'll see in the show notes, uh, we have the webpage. You can just click on, to see what Jay's doing and uh, check out the schedule again. Thanks, Jay. Thank you so much for having us. You bet. Hey, to our listeners, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if you have comments or questions. Uh, drop us a line at policingmatters at policeone.com. Policingmatters at policeone.com and let me know what you think. All right, stay safe out there and hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you.